supported. Just the other day was the seven-year anniversary of the murder of Muammar Gaddafi that Hillary Clinton famously said, we came, we saw he died. And now what is Libya? Libya is a slave market. How did the war with yeah. Iraq turn yeah. out? You're doing yeah. exactly the same thing we did in the case of Iraq. We don't want another war in the Middle East. Yeah. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. On today's show, voices in opposition to more U.S. imperialist war and rumors of war. In the second half, a special treat, I sit down with Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace, and we discuss Saudi Arabia, its war crimes and genocide in Yemen, the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, the march to war with Iran, and the critical ways that U.S. lawmakers and the public can respond in the coming weeks. Also, voices from Sunday's Women's March on the Pentagon, organized by activists including Cindy Sheehan. All that and Gerald Horn is back in the house today, but first our headlines. Protests and pickets top our headlines this week. Hundreds of people braved cold and wind for the Women's March on the Pentagon held just outside D.C. and Virginia on Sunday. Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein was just one of the many speakers and performers opposing what organizers call the bipartisan war machine of both Republican and Democratic lawmakers. While the Pentagon is listening, and I trust that they are, we have a few suggestions to make, okay? Go back to the drawing boards. We need a whole new foreign policy based on international law, human rights, and diplomacy, not economic and military domination. We need to pull out of Yemen. The war will collapse. The Saudis can't do it without our support. Let's stop this horrific criminal war. More voices from the Women's March on the Pentagon later in the show. Now, state violence at home in the U.S. was the focus on Monday as thousands of people from California to D.C. participated in the October 22nd National Day of Protest Against Police Brutality. The annual day has been observed since 1996 and is being revived by the Movement for Black Lives. Chantel James attended the D.C. march and filed this report. Police Terror Project DC organized DC's contention of the National Day of Protest Against Police Brutality this year. On Monday, over a hundred protesters gathered at the Gallery Place Chinatown Metro Center as protesters gathered in cities across the country. 
They made a number of symbolic stops on their march, including to the restaurant where Mayor Muriel Bowser was dining with supporters and to the new National Law Enforcement Museum to protest killings by police officers and policies such as stop and frisk. Before marching, Sean Blackman gave remarks that placed even isolated police incidents in their systemic context. For those who don't know, the reason why we use the language Stop Police Terror Project is because we feel that if the police brutalizes someone, that in and of itself is an isolated act. If the cops kill someone, that in and of itself is an isolated act. But once we understand that the brunt of police repression and police terror are aimed at oppressed groups in this country, at poor and working communities in this country, and when we see how the presence of the police in poor working and oppressed communities are directly connected to the material conditions, to the housing that people have, to the jobs that are available to people, to the wages that people make, to the health care that people have or more than likely don't have available, to the overall resources that people need to elevate to their uh, ultimate human potential, once we see how all of that is connected and coincided with the role that police play under white supremacy and under capitalism, we believe that is what escalates a situation from simply brutality to a condition of terror. From Chinatown, D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. A national coordinator of the National Day of Protest Against Police Brutality is the October 22nd Coalition, which also works on the Stolen Lives Project, documenting cases of killing by law enforcement nationwide. Now, the picket I mentioned is against the Merit Corporation. Thousands of Merit employees have been striking for three weeks to tell Marriott that one job should pay enough to raise a family, pay the bills, and retire with dignity. Tracy Lingo, an organizer based in Baltimore for the Unite Here Union, told WPFW Pacifica Radio that Marylanders are especially impacted by Marriott, which is based in the D.C. suburb of Bethesda, Maryland. Here we have the richest players in our economy who are constantly benefiting from basically corporate welfare, and yet not having any responsibility for the communities they operate in. Lingo said that married employees are encouraging the public to support their strike by not staying at the dozens of Marriott hotel brands. More information is at the UniteHere.org or FairHotel.org websites. In election news from the D.C. area, the public watchdog group Public Citizen has filed a complaint against Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser for apparent violations of the contribution limits to two at-large council candidates, Dion Reeder and Anita Bonds. The complaint asked the D.C. Office of Campaign Finance to investigate whether an expensive mailer and an event promoted as a get-out-the-vote gathering constitutes in-kind contributions to Reeder and Bonds in excess of campaign contribution limits. In Maryland politics, you would not know it based on polls pushed by the Washington Post and other Beltway media, but there is still an election happening for governor. Reporter Pete Tucker says that while the issue of race is playing a prominent role in governor's races in Georgia and Florida, in Maryland, slights are a lot more subtle against the Democratic nominee, former NAACP head Ben Jealous. With the election just 11 days away, 
pollsters say Ben Jealous, the former head of the NAACP and Democratic candidate for Maryland governor, is down double digits to Larry Hogan, the Republican incumbent. These same pollsters failed to predict Jealous's landslide primary win, just as pollsters nationwide have undercounted support for progressive candidates of color in the Trump era. In Boston, Ayanna Presley, a progressive African-American congressional candidate, was predicted to lose by 13 points in the Democratic primary, but she won by 18, a 31-point swing. In New York, polls showed Latina socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez trailing an incumbent Democratic congressman by 36 points, but she won by 15, a 51-point spread. In Florida, polls showed Andrew Gillum, the progressive African-American mayor of Tallahassee, coming in fourth in the Democratic primary for governor, but he captured the nomination. In the Trump era, polls aren't just failing, but appear to be doing so in a specific way, by undercounting support for progressive candidates of color. Far from harmless, these polling errors run the risk of becoming self-fulfilling prophecies. It's not hard to see why. Who's excited to back a sure loser? This applies to voters who are more likely to stay home on election day if they're told their preferred candidate has no shot, as well as to donors who prefer to back a likely winner. Because polls are so easy to cite, reporters are quick to do so and often imbue them with a level of certainty that isn't warranted. That's why the Associated Press, in updating its AP style book earlier this year, offered this word of caution, quote, Poll results that seek to preview the outcome of an election must never be the lead, headline, or single subject of any story. Unfortunately, the AP's warning has gone unheeded, as headline after headline all but declare the Maryland governor's race to be over. But in the Trump era, with a civil rights leader like Jealous on the ballot, that's not as sure a thing as they're making it sound. A big thanks to Pete Tucker, who powered through that piece, suffering from the flu this week. I really appreciate that, man. Well, in climate and environment news, it was reported this week that uncapped oil wells from a company named Taylor Energy have leaked millions of barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico since 2004, after drilling platforms were destroyed by Hurricane Ivan. Though Taylor Energy took pains to keep the leak a secret, and had help from the Coast Guard and federal agencies in doing so, they were forced by environmentalists to disclose the information in 2010, and they still have not been able to stop the destruction. Now experts say that the total amount of Taylor's oil spill threatens to overtake the BP Deepwater Horizon disaster as the nation's largest offshore drilling disaster. This revelation is occurring as the Trump administration attempts to offer more offshore drilling leases and as hurricanes become more numerous and powerful. Also, according to a new survey by Food and Water Watch, 15 million people in the United States experienced a water shutoff in 2016, translating to one out of every 20 households. The first ever nationwide assessment of water shutoffs for non-payment reveals that households across the U.S. are facing an alarming and hidden water affordability crisis. And then a bit of good environmental news. Sustainability advocates are cheering the European Parliament's vote this week to ban single-use plastics like straws, plates, cups, and utensils by 2021. According to the Ocean Conservancy, 8 million metric tons of plastics enter the world's oceans each year. And finally, in culture and media, 
Saturday and Sunday, October 27th and 28th, La Raza for Liberation will host Decolonize, a knowledge and Skillshare unconference for people of color to build solidarity across human, animal, and environmental justice movements at George Mason University, 4400 University Drive in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information, go to LaRazaForLiberation.org. And Saturday, October 27th, the Party for Socialism and Liberation will hold a community forum, Eyewitness Cuba in the Blockade, with featured speaker Miguel Fraga, first secretary of the Cuban Embassy in Washington, D.C., 6 p.m. at the St. Stephen and the Incarnation Church in Northwest D.C. Email dc at pslweb.org for more info. And finally, the organization One DC is raising funds to continue renovation of its Black Workers and Wellness Center, a multi-use building that the organization purchased last year in Southeast DC. Goals of the center include finding and creating positive, dignified Black work and training, and being an incubation space for alternatives to low-wage work, such as worker cooperatives. Dominique Molden told on the ground Chantel James that the center is already hosting trainings for returning citizens and youth and is being upgraded. We have a wonderful design that we're creating for the building. And so tonight we're opening up the building to the community and showing showing them the new space. And we're going to design a wonderful space for the people of Anacostia. For more information about the center's campaign, email bwc at 1dconline.org or call 202-232-2915. That's 202-232-2915. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn, stay with us. We gon' be all right. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? We gon' be all right. Uh, and when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the pay cut. Bahamas, I'll be looking at you from the face down. One Mac 11, even boom with the bass down. Skimming, and let me tell you about my life. Painkillers only put me in a twilight. But pretty Benjamin is the highlight. I tell my mama I love her, but this what I like. Lord knows, 20 of them in my Chevy. Tell them all to come and get me, reaping everything I sow. So my karma come in heaven, no preliminary hearings on my record. I'm a m***ing gangsta in silence for the record. Uh. Tell the world I know it's too late. Boys and girls, I think I've gone crazy. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, to talk about international news. And Gerald, I first want to talk about Honduras, the caravan of reportedly more than 7,000 people is making its way toward the United States from Honduras. 
And these are people who are refugees. They are fleeing violence, poverty, starvation, lack of opportunity and making their way here. Yet somehow just the basic international rules around refugees are being ignored and their arrival and their journey is being turned into a political football by President Trump. So I just wanted us to give people a little more background on what the United States has done to Honduras and how we're complicit in the, the lives and the, the misery there. What is going on right now with this caravan heading northward, presumably to the U.S. border, is quite a commentary on the depredations of imperialism, particularly U.S. imperialism. There are those who would like us to think only of Beverly Hills when we think of U.S. imperialism, but the flip side of that coin is Honduras, where these thousands of people are fleeing a U.S.-backed government in a country that has been dominated by U.S. imperialism for decades, and as your comment suggested, being subjected not only to hunger and starvation and mass unemployment, but also terrorism. And the fact of the matter is that Mr. Trump, in beating the drum against these poor people heading northward, it says quite a bit about his constituency. That is to say, in his speech in Montana just a few days ago, he said that the two key campaign issues for the midterm elections in November is this issue of Brett Kavanaugh, that is to say sexism, and the caravan, that is to say racism. So why is it that Mr. Trump feels that his constituency resonates to the dual shotgun barrel issues of racism and sexism? I think that's a question we all need to ponder. Well, I also know that uh, speaking of elections, I mean, I, I think we mentioned this the last time we were on the air, this kind of comical new narrative about China being involved in hacking or interfering in U.S. elections. And of course, this week, when the uh, United States pulled out of the nuclear treaty that had been signed with the Soviet Union, a lot of commentators were really expressing what this could mean for our relationship with China, with the U.S. relationship with China, and what the treaty being abandoned means for China. It's a very dangerous turn of events. It's apparent that the attempted breakout from this nuclear treaty is an attempt to build up the U.S. nuclear arsenal in order to intimidate and threaten China, which I'm sure will respond in kind. Uh, recall that we mentioned, I believe the last time we were on the air, the speech by Vice President Michael Pence on October 4th, 2018, which fundamentally launched a new Cold War focused on China. Uh, this goes along with the trade war slapping billions of dollars in U.S. tariffs on Chinese exports. It goes along, I'm afraid to say, with the stock market decline as well, because U.S. corporations like Microsoft, Apple, KFC, General Motors, and Starbucks are heavily invested in China, and their prospects will be rather dim in the face of this new Cold War. We also know about U.S. ships and Chinese naval vessels jousting in the South China Sea. We also know that the United States is trying to export its anti-China policy to its so-called allies. For example, 
the new trade agreement with Canada has a provision that suggests that Canada cannot enter into a trade agreement with China unless the United States approves. In other words, Canada has given up part of its sovereignty. We also know that China has begun to reduce its purchase of U.S. Treasury bills, that is to say loans to the United States government, which is used to finance everything from the Pentagon to the post office. If this trend continues, the United States will be faced with a difficult choice of either raising taxes or cutting programs. So this is a very ominous and dangerous turn of events with consequences that are too ghastly to contemplate. What do you think their end game is? I mean, as nonsensical as the administration seems, they must have an end game that doesn't include their own annihilation. Well, let's hope so. But as you know, wars oftentimes happen by dint of accident, not necessarily by dint of intention. I think that their end game is what you saw on December 20th, 1991, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the ouster of the Soviet Communist Party. Their end game is the collapse of communist rule in China. I think that it's also dangerous because in trying to shift the focus to China, I think the White House recognizes that there is more unity in not only the U.S. ruling class on targeting China, but also, I have to say, as a person who is on black radio quite a bit, I was just on black radio in New Orleans, for example, just a day or two ago, and whenever I'm on a black radio station, I inevitably get a call with some person alleging that China is the new colonialist in Africa. And so, in other words, there's been a kind of buy-in with regard to at least a segment of the black American population with regard to this new Cold War against China, of course, uh, I oftentimes ask them what do they think of France's role in Africa, since this has been the real vampire sucking the lifeblood out of the continent for decades. But that's another story for another day. I think that they've accepted the premise and the predicate of the new Cold War, which has as its end game some sort of surrender by the Chinese Communist Party, which I don't think will happen short of military conflict, to put it bluntly. I don't think this is going to eventuate the way things happened in Moscow on December 25th, 1991. Well, that makes sense to me. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you.
Next, we have a message of solidarity from Mina Rojas, who is an activist from Colombia. She works with African Colombian women there for their safety, and she works in Colombia for peace. So she has a message of solidarity from that community to ours. Tell me what woman's power looks like. From the traditional and ancestral territories, black and Afro-descendant territories in Colombia, I want to bring greetings of joy, peace, and freedom. It is a pleasure, but also a great honor for me to be here and to have the opportunity to share with you our greetings and our message of solidarity for us, uh, a country and territories that has suffered greatly from the racist, imperialist, homophobic war and militarization of and money from the U.S. It's very important that women here in the United States are standing up as we stand up in Colombia and our Afro-Ascendant territories defending life, defending the environment, defending the water, defending the resources that this greedy country want for their own benefit. So it's very important and I salute this mobilization. I salute the voice of women in this country. I salute that you are today standing up here, not just for you, but for all the women in the country and the world, not just for you, but for all the children in the world, not just for you, but all the people, for the black people, my black people in Colombia. And I would like that you know that at the same time, we are holding a very important struggle also in Colombia, sustaining and defending lands, territories, and resources that are patrimony of humanity. So it's very important to, for me to be today here. I think that this is also a very important moment for struggles to get together, to build transnational powers, because we understand we cannot do it by ourselves. So we know we have you, and please know that you have us. Thank you very much. Power to woman. Hi, everybody. My name is Emma. I can't really describe how amazing it is to see how big this crowd is and to see the turnout and to know that there are people right now across the country that stood in solidarity with us yesterday and today and across the world. People in Japan were standing up against the war machine in solidarity with the Women's March on the Pentagon, um, which is just incredibly moving because we're fighting a big battle. The U.S. imperialism is destroying things here at home and, of course, tons of things abroad. And I think it's really important that we bring the issue of the bipartisan war machine back in front of people, especially younger people right now, because people do care about things, but they don't realize that most of what they care about can be traced back to the fact that war is leading our economy, that we are the war machine, our country, we are on the wrong track. If you care about health care, if you care about education, if you care about the environment, you also need to care about war and you need to stop war because that is ruining all of those things. And if we don't stop the war machine, we cannot solve any of those other problems.
I'd like to in introduce a friend of mine and a powerful person, Jill Stein. Thank you so much, Bonnie, and thank you, Cindy. You two are just wonderful. Can we just give them a big, huge thank you? This is what democracy looks like. You know, there's not a lot of democracy out there right now because they got this new McCarthyism thing going. We got another name for it. We call it Maddowism. After its latest cheerleader, because this era of political opposition, or I should say political uh, censorship and warmongering and the suppression of political opposition is back big time. So to look around, you would think that there's nothing going on out there. But you know what? Just because there's radio silence does not mean that there ain't a rebellion in full swing. There is. You just got to go to the communities to see it. And if you go to Flint, Michigan, or if you go to Baltimore, if you go to the housing projects, if you go to the public schools that are being shut down, if you go to the food pantries where people don't have enough to eat. You know why they don't have enough to eat? You know why our communities are crumbling? Because our tax dollars are going over there. In the last, the last tax day, the average American devoted something like $3,400 to keep that thing doing what it is doing. And that's the Pentagon, if you can't see what I'm pointing to. So while we were digging deep for the Pentagon, nearly $3,500, do you know what, do you know how much we were appropriating to our communities? It was $80 of the average tax base that went to support social programs and $40 that went to support the EPA. So when Walter talks about speaking truth to power, speaking truth about power, let's add to that. And let's say, let's take power back and throw the bums out. Because we all know so well, they are representing the 1%. They are not representing us. And I want to give a big thank you right now, especially to three candidates who are running right now for Congress, uh, two for Congress and one for Senate. Pat Elder, right over here, running in Maryland against Steny Hoyer, one of the foundations of the war machine. Uh, Diane Moxley, where are you, Diane, who's running in New Jersey. Diane, Diane, running in New Jersey uh, against an incumbent Republican, but you can't really tell much difference between the Democrat and the Republican these days. Because, you know, the Democrats are leading the charge for more war these days. They're attacking Trump but they're attacking him from the right. They don't want peace to be made. They don't want peace on the Korean Peninsula. You know, Trump may be doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, but once in a while he has stumbled into the right thing accidentally. We'll see how long that lasts. But, you know, we should not be trying to discourage North and South Korea from making peace, which they are finally doing because they have told the U.S. to get out of the way. They said it nicely, of course, but 
you know, thank goodness they are not waiting for the United States to give them permission to make peace after 60 years of endless war. It's time for peace on the Korean Peninsula. We need to take a lesson from the people of South Korea who were led by the labor movement and by women in particular to get out into the street. Weekend after weekend, they were out with their candles in the candlelight revolution, and they uh, basically gave the uh, courage of their convictions to their courts who impeached their warmongering corporate-sponsored president. We need to follow in the footsteps of South Korea. <laughs> we need to have a strong movement in the streets, take it into the voting booth, and we need to begin to make peace for our planet, for our people not just for the profiteers and the warmongers who are represented by both political parties. And I also wanted to mention Madeline Hoffman, who's also here running for Senate, another peace candidate uh, from the state of uh, Maryland, Maryland, New Jersey also. So just real quickly, while the Pentagon is listening, and I trust that they are, we got a few things, a few suggestions to make, okay? Go back to the drawing boards. We need a whole new foreign policy based on international law, human rights, and diplomacy, not economic and military domination. We need to pull out of Yemen. The war will collapse. The Saudis can't do it without our support. Let's stop this horrific criminal war. We need to create a department of defense, not a department of offense. We can close those 800 bases. You know how much the whole world has? You add up the whole world, they have 30. We have 800, okay? Something's wrong with this picture. It's called empire, and it's collapsing. We need not only to stop the sale of weapons to Saudi Arabia, we need a permanent war embargo of all weapons to the Middle East. In fact, a permanent embargo of weapons sale to the world. Let's stop the profiteering over all the dead bodies of the women and children who are being destroyed in these horrible wars. And then um, finally, yeah, then we need a global Green New Deal. Put the military money into fighting the true war that is threatening us all, and that is the war against climate, which we must all get behind so we can stop this lethal climate change which is coming down on us. If we put even a portion of the money that we're putting into the war machine, put that into the green energy transition, you know what, it actually pays for itself because we get so much healthier when we move to green energy that it, we save that much in health savings that it actually pays for the green energy transition. We also need green agriculture and a dream, green transportation system. It makes the wars for oil obsolete it revives our economy, and it can turn the tide on climate change. And we need to do it globally. Sign the Iran Treaty, the Paris Treaty, sign the Nuclear Weapons Treaty, and above all, don't let them silence you. Don't let them blame and shame you. We are the antidote to Donald Trump. We are not the cause. The only people that third parties take votes from are the non-voting bloc. That is the largest block of voters out there. We need more choices, not less. If you're worried about a split vote, get behind ranked choice voting. You don't solve our democracy problem by creating less democracy. We need more democracy. Thank you. Keep up the fight. Peace out.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. I'm here with Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink. And I want to you to first give me your take on what the situation is now with the United States and Saudi Arabia. After putting out a series of different statements, Saudi Arabia finally admitted this week that Jamal Khashoggi was murdered inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Well, we have no idea what the U.S.-Saudi relationship is going to be. Unfortunately, it seems like all along, President Trump was trying to figure out how he could push this under the rug and do business as usual. And Esther, there's so much business involved. And it's not just Trump and Jared Kushner. It's so many U.S. companies that have deals that are either already happening or in the works with Saudi Arabia. And we're not talking about millions of dollars. We're not talking about tens of millions of dollars. We're not talking about hundreds. We're talking about billions of dollars. And with all that money on the line, you can imagine how much these companies are trying to figure out, all right, you know, can I somehow stay under the radar a little bit but keep these deals going? And then in terms of the U.S. government, Certainly, Trump has already come out and said, I don't want to stop the weapons deals. And he puts it in light of way more money than it really is and way more jobs than it really is. But still, you know, he wants to keep those weapons flowing. And then there's all the intelligence that the U.S. and Saudi have been cooperating on. And I would say, you know, for what result, because the Saudis are really spreading terrorism. But in any case, there are just so many links that are going to be very, very hard to pressure our government and our companies to unravel. Well, of course, even on our show, we've covered numerous protests by Code Pink against Mohammed bin Salman long before Hashokji's murder. And these were protests for war crimes and genocide in Yemen. There was a report this week that 14 million faced starvation and, of course, brutal repression inside Saudi Arabia, including up to 10 beheadings a day, I saw in one report. So I wonder, what is this moment like for you with the attention of world leaders, corporations, and the corporate media finally forced to confront the barbaric violence of the U.S.-backed Saudi regime? And, you know, they had been praising him, you know, just a few months ago, praising MBS and, you know, taking his money at the same time. Well, I want to thank you because I remember you were one of the few journalists who came out with us and covered our protests against MBS when he was here and he was being lauded by everybody as this great reformist and Democrats and Republicans, senators, congresspeople, they were all just really excited about meeting him. And the things that we have been saying now for years are finally coming out in the mainstream press. And it's terrible that it had to be the death of Jamal Khashoggi uh, that led to this. But when you take a journalist who is writing for the Washington Post and just so close to the elites in this city and you murder him in such a brutal way, that just pisses them off. And it's not like these poor children in Yemen that die with nobody except their families even knowing about it. This is somebody who the Washington Post cares a lot about. And they have been covering this nonstop with several op-eds a day and uh, fabulous reporting. 
And so it feels good in the sense that finally so many of these issues are coming out and that his death is like peeling away one layer of this rotten onion and people are starting to see the connections to the women activists who are in prison, the human rights and the lawyers and the bloggers who are in prison, the terrible things that the Saudis are doing in Yemen. And it's a time to really get people to understand that what we have been sold as our important allies is just a phony bill of goods. This murder is is really horrific and deserving of all the attention that's being given. But when I look at the totality of the situation that you just mentioned, this history in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East, and also consider the hundreds of thousands of Yemenis that have died, and also the apartheid state of Israel, you know, which is going on at the same time in terms of its repression of the Palestinian people. I can't get it out of my mind that Jamal Khashoggi, a Washington Post journalist, is being treated like an honorary white. Uh, (laughs) Interesting you should say that. You know, and he looks kind of white, too. And I think it's really just a question of he is uh, one of the elites not only here but he was one of the elites in Saudi Arabia as well. Right, he he didn't oppose the monarchy. Not at all. He considered himself the royal part of the royal opposition. I remember being in an event with him and I was so angry because we were saying you are not hard enough on the Saudis. You're not calling for a constitution, you're not calling for freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. You're not calling them out for the way the Shia mi- minority is being treated. Uh, You're not saying how the 10 million, quote, guest workers, the foreign workers who are there, who are treated like indentured servants are. And so we were hard on him about saying that his criticisms were so mild Mm -hmm. and were aimed at Mohammed bin Salman, not at the system itself. So, you know, that's why he was so accepted here. If he had been so critical of the kingdom, as some of us have been, he would never have been writing for the Washington Post to begin with. Exactly. And those of us who used to work at the Washington Post can probably attest to that as well, especially people of color. So I want to kind of drill down into the extent of the horror in Yemen, because one of the reasons why I think it's not being covered is because it's kind of being glossed over. You know, for a long time, people were using this figure 10,000 dead. And really, when you count cholera victims, victims of starvation, malnutrition, all types of indirect causes of death. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who've been killed. I'm so glad that you're saying that because I really get upset when they use that 10,000 or 15,000 people dead. No, they used to be saying there was a child that was dying every 10 minutes from the effects of war and hunger, and it's all related. Now they're saying it's it's every five minutes. And I also don't like when they say on the brink of famine, because that sort of makes you feel like, well, you know, they're okay, but we don't want to get them over the brink of famine. You know what? They're starving. People are starving every single day. Exactly. In Yemen. And when we do get some of the media to cover this and you see these children with their tiny little uh, legs and their tiny little arms and they're just, you know, withering away, it's, it's just horrendous that the world allows this to go on. 
three years, the U.S. has been so embedded with the Saudis that we do have blood on our hands. And this starvation in Yemen is due to our participation. And it's interesting when Donald Trump once in a while says something true, like uh, that the, the kingdom would not stay in power for two weeks were it not for U.S. support. Well, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. And so this war in Yemen would not continue without U.S. support. So I think it's so important that we start pivoting from this issue of Khashoggi's murder and start looking at the murder every single day of people in Yemen. Well, I want to pivot. Um, I'm going to take a brief break, and we'll be right back with Medea Benjamin of Code Pink. (laughs) Yeah! This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm here with Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, and I think everyone's favorite troublemaker <laughs> here in <laughs> Washington. You know, your recent kind of intervention at the Hudson Institute went viral around the world. People saw you get up and, you know, I guess they thought they were hearing another speech, but they heard you make your speech about the U.S. not needing to go into another war in Iran. And I want to play a little clip of that and then ask you about whether you think this new crisis in terms of Hashokji's murder will basically force the Trump administration to back off and to slow their role for Iran. You were making a case for war with Iran. How did the war with Iraq turn out? You're doing exactly the same thing we did in the case of Iraq. We don't want another war in the Middle East. Let's you want to go outside and give How does Iraq turn out? How did Libya turn out? We have the people of Syria suffering. And how dare you bring up the issue of Yemen? It's the Saudi bombing that is killing most people in Yemen. So let's get real. No more war. Peace with Iran. So that was you uh, making your intervention at the Hudson Institute. And so what what do you think this crisis will do to the Trump administration's aggression toward Iran? It's unclear yet. The focus has been off of Iran, which is in some ways a positive thing. But on November 4th, the second round of sanctions is going to be imposed. And that is where the administration is trying to stop the Iranians from being able to sell their oil overseas. In the meantime, the Europeans are putting together a vehicle 
for their countries to be able to continue doing business with Iran and avoid the U.S. sanctions. But it seems like that vehicle won't be ready until next year. And we're not sure that the companies are going to feel secure enough in using that financial vehicle because they are afraid of U.S. secondary sanctions on them. And we've already seen many companies that have pulled out of Iran because of this fear. So the Iranian people are suffering. The sanctions are going to get even harsher. And we certainly shouldn't think that Mike Pompeo or John Bolton have stopped their efforts to squeeze the Iranian economy so much. Their goal is to get the Iranian people to rise up and overthrow their government. And for many people in Iran, uh, they might want a different government, but they don't see a sudden overthrow as something that's going to bring in a stable, secure, secular democracy. On the contrary, they see it as bringing chaos like is happening in neighboring countries. And that's why uh, we're taking a peace delegation that we hope you will be part of that's going in January to Iran. We're also doing a one-day summit on Iran December 1st to lay out all of these issues and see how we can work to stop another war in Iran. But the simple answer to your question about how Khashoggi's murder uh, could lead to a change in U.S. policy towards Iran, the question is still up in the air. So we also covered it when Code Pink led a campaign to end U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia, and you fell short on votes. And it seemed like it was very close. I mean, you only needed a few people to come on your side and they failed to come over. So what does congressional support look like now in terms of Congress actually looking at this and saying, no, we can't keep funding this country? Well, it's interesting, Esther, because we're in the halls of Congress just about every day for the last two weeks, and we're saying to them, now is the time to show that you really care about this murder, and of course we add in what's happening in Yemen, and the way that you can be serious about this is to sign on to two resolutions, one in the House and one in the Senate, that would stop U.S. support for the Saudi war in Yemen. And uh, we are getting a lot of positive feedback when we go into the offices, but we wonder, is this just because they want to sound good in the moment, or will they really become sponsors of this legislation? So, you know, it's one thing to have them say, oh, yes, I want accountability. I signed on to a letter calling on the administration to do a real investigation. It's another for them to come out and say, we will not keep refueling the Saudi planes. We will not be helping them with logistics anymore. And we will cut off weapons sales. So there will be votes coming up after the uh, midterm elections. And we hope we'll be able to pass Uh, some serious efforts to stop U.S. support for the war in Yemen. Yeah, because I know that this whole question of arms sales was also connected to the resolution that I know Sanders and a few other people backed around around the fact that this is a war and you're supposed to have congressional approval for a war. And I know there was, uh, I think 
I think they were connected in the way these the support for the arms sales, but also for the idea that Congress has to actually approve this war act that we're involved in, and they haven't done that. Well, that's right. So we have a resolution by uh, Bernie Sanders and Chris Murphy on the Democratic side, and then Mike Lee on the Republican side, and they have about 12 co-sponsors right now, and that's what we're going through the halls of Congress. And you know, of course, those of us living in D.C., we don't have a senator, so we consider all of them our representatives. So if anybody listening wants to join us and go to some of these Senate offices and ask them to put their name on this Bernie Sanders resolution, uh, please contact us at Code Pink. You could just write to info at codepink.org. If you have a couple of hours free any day during the week, we'd love to have you join us. Okay, so that's something that people can do. There is a lot they can do. And if right. I could mention a couple of other things, mm-hmm. one is that we can go to these PR firms that are right in Washington, D.C., and they represent the Saudi government. They're the ones who have been whitewashing this regime. They're the ones that set up all the meetings with Oprah Winfrey and The Rock Johnson and uh, Bill Gates and all the uh, high-tech people when Mohammed bin Salman was in town. They're the ones that should be held accountable, and we should demand that they break their contracts with the Saudi government. There are three of them that have already done that. We picked a a fourth one. one, Well, uh, the first one that did it was called the Harbor Group. Uh, We went today to one called the McEwen Group, which was started by Buck McEwen, who used to be the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, and parlayed all of his contacts in Congress now to be a PR firm that is a registered foreign agent of the Saudi government. Imagine that. So we went to their offices today and had uh, quite a a good time until the um, security came and kicked us out. And we'll be going to other of these offices. But the other thing we can do, and people can do this from their homes, is that we call their offices uh, and we email them and we send them uh, tweets asking them to cancel their contracts. And it's a campaign. We're going one by one. And when each one stops, then we'll go to the next one, then go to the next one. And it's a very important campaign. Nobody in the United States should be a registered foreign agent of the Saudi government, nobody should be trying to give a positive spin to the vicious acts of this kingdom. Mm. So that is what's happening now, and that's what you're doing to keep the pressure on those in Congress, on the PR firms, and and also you know phone calls, whatever people can do. So you know. That helps me to tie back into the need for independent media, because what you have here is people paid to put out a certain type of information, well paid, actually. And speaking of well paid, we didn't even talk about the fact that this horrific story came out about paid U.S. mercenaries in Yemen, hired assassins, some of which are American military who are still on like the National Guard payroll or whatever. And we have we didn't have a chance to talk about that, but people in the US pay to be involved in this war in Yemen. People in the US pay to put out information defending this murderous regime. And you know, of course it's not just Saudi Arabia, it's Israel and all their connections. 
So it just goes back to me how important it is that we have grassroots, listener-sponsored news and information. Well, that's right. And you, my dear sister, are out there (laughs) with us. And I must say, one of the only ones out there with us. I can't thank you enough. And I say to the listeners, let's keep this voice of independent media alive and thriving. Well, thank you, Medea. I've been speaking to Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink. Thank you, Medea, for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. Okay. And Medea Benjamin will have the last word on today's show about what we can do, how we can fight back against the war machine. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. The music we play this hour included a remix of Edwin Starr's War by Dr. Spider and Abstracker. You can write us at our website, we love to hear from you. If you are a listener and are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page, On The Ground Show. Our page has a picket sign with green letters that say On The Ground. On The Ground is also on Twitter and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And the most complete versions of all of our shows are on our website, OnTheGroundShow.org. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.